Hi, I'm Andrew from the Hometown Murders podcast. You're listening to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, a podcast about true crime in schools. So join Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host, as she presents the bad apples within the school system. You will hear school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello everyone and thank you for joining me today. This is episode 68 and the story today is from my own home country of Australia and it has two parts. This is part one and I will release part two in a few days. And the music you heard at the start is Indigenous Australian music to set the scene for today's story. But let's do our usual hellos. Hello to these people who have joined our Facebook group. Hello to Robert Brown, Seth Patterson, Melissa Quinn, Maria Chechak, Tracy Christie, Nanette Venter, and this last one, I'm not too sure how to say it, but I think it might be Mew Mew Woo. So hopefully I said that correct. Now, some of you would know that at the start of each episode, I do a country of focus based on the countries that people are listening from. So today, as the story is from Australia, I will present some interesting facts about my own home country. Australia has a larger population of camels than Egypt, believe it or not, and Saudi Arabia imports camels from Australia mostly for meat production. Now, in Australia, it's also illegal to walk on the right-hand side of a footpath. I never knew this. So in Australia, we drive on the left-hand side of the roads and obviously we walk on the left-hand side of footpaths. So walking on the right-hand side of the footpath is against law, which I did not even know. So the number of times I have probably broken the law would probably be endless. Isn't that amazing? Now, each year, the city of Brisbane, where I am, hosts the World Championships of Cockroach Racing. Now, if you don't know what cockroaches are, they are those pesky insects. They are flying insects. And you can find them in people's houses and they're really, really annoying. Anyway, so Brisbane has the World Championship of Cockroach Racing. As the story goes, the Story Bridge Hotel Cockroach Races were started when two punters sat in the bar arguing over which suburb had the biggest and fastest cockroaches. So they decided to race some roaches the next day and history was made. The races have now been held at the Story Bridge Hotel for 38 years. Entry is $5 per race to bring your own cockroach, or you can buy a cockroach for an additional $5. The race starts when the steward lifts the gate. The first lucky cockroach across the line is the winner. Flying will not be tolerated, 
an entrance thought to have gained an unfair airborne advantage will be disqualified. And trophies are awarded to first, second and third place. Now, just some other facts about these insects. They have been around since the time of dinosaurs. They can live for almost a month without food and they can live about two weeks without water. Some female cockroaches only mate once and stay pregnant for life. Oh my goodness, poor girls. A cockroach can live for up to one week without its head. Yes, that's correct. Cockroaches can also hold their breath for up to 40 minutes, and they can run an amazing three miles an hour. Wow. (laughs) All right, that's enough about cockroaches. Now, for this very last fact, this incident happened 50 years ago in 1967. The Australian Prime Minister at the time was a man named Harold Holt. He went to a beach for a swim and then completely disappeared, and he was never seen again. So, of course, conspiracy theories started, such as that he was a Chinese spy and a Chinese submarine picked him up, and then he lived in China for the rest of his life. Hmm. Then there was the theory that the CIA assassinated him because America thought Australia would pull out of the Vietnam War. And lastly, there was the theory that he faked his death and moved to Switzerland with his lover. Hmm. Okay, so which of those theories do you believe? So let's preview the story today. It's called Stolen. The children were taken from their homes. Why? This story today is one that I've been wanting to tell for a while as it describes a very sad chapter in the history of my own country, Australia. Australia is only about 240 years old, but of course, this refers to the history of white settlement in Australia, as the Indigenous peoples of Australia have inhabited the continent for at least 60,000 years. We will start with some information about Indigenous Australians as this is the subject matter of this episode. It will give you a more thorough understanding of the story. Indigenous Australians are the First Nations people, and it has been confirmed through archaeological evidence that they are the oldest continuous civilization on Earth, dating back more than 60,000 years. They migrated out of Africa across India and Asia before reaching Australia. They comprise of two distinct groups, the Aboriginals and the Torres Strait Islanders. The Aboriginals are the people who live on the mainland of Australia, while the Torres Strait Islanders come from the body of water called the Torres Strait, which is in the north between Australia and Papua New Guinea. There are more than 200 islands in this area and the people who inhabit the area are called the Torres Strait Islanders. Indigenous Australians are a diverse group made up of over 500 different cultural groups. There were roughly about 250 languages and 600 dialects spoken at the time of white colonisation 
but of course this has declined over time. So I just want to explain some terminology here. The word Aborigine is generally perceived as insensitive because it has racist connotations from Australia's colonial past and lumps people with diverse backgrounds into a single group. Therefore, the correct terminology to use would be Aboriginal person, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So this is the terminology that you're going to hear throughout this story. Now, it's also a common misconception that Aboriginal people live in the outback. However, about a third live in the major cities of Australia and only 20% live in the remote areas. So, after living in Australia for thousands of years, the Indigenous people then saw the arrival of the British in 1788, who established a colony in the location where the city of Sydney now stands on the eastern coast of Australia. You may be familiar with this city as it has the iconic Sydney Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The native inhabitants watched these ships arrive with these people who they described as being like ghosts. And it wasn't long until cultural differences and ignorance resulted in conflict between the new colonists and the indigenous people. The colonists believed that the land was terra nullius, or no man's land, and therefore they set about taking possession of indigenous land for grazing and farming. They considered that land had no significance to the indigenous peoples as they didn't see any visible signs of farming. Both groups needed the land for survival, but had different ways in using the land and its resources. Indigenous customs respected the land as sacred, whereas the Europeans used the land for its agricultural uses. The Indigenous people had their sacred sites desecrated and their food and water sources were depleted. They hit back by killing sheep, cattle and horses and burning crops and buildings. The colonists then carried out massacres with their guns, which were no match for the spears used by the Indigenous people. The Indigenous population declined dramatically due to these conflicts, but also due to the introduction of new diseases such as syphilis, smallpox and influenza, which were totally unknown for thousands of years of Indigenous existence, and they were diseases that they had absolutely no resistance to. Alcohol was also introduced, which had devastating impacts on the people. After having been settled by the British for 25 years, a new governor was appointed to oversee the new colony. His name was Governor Lachlan Macquarie. Race relations at this time were not in a good place, and the colonial government then set about introducing policies that would assimilate the Indigenous people into the white culture. In 1814, Governor Macquarie established the Parramatta Native Institution, with the aim being to house and indoctrinate Aboriginal people with European customs. However, this institution was intolerant of Indigenous traditions 
making the assumption that European traditions were superior. This institution was the earliest example in Australia's history of government policy specifically aimed at enforcing assimilation and eliminating Aboriginal cultural traditions. These policies would go on to have severe and damaging impacts upon the Indigenous peoples of Australia. Here is how Governor Macquarie described it. I deemed it as an act of justice as well as humanity to make at least an attempt to ameliorate their condition and to endeavour to civilise them in as far as their wandering habits would admit it. Now we will go on to specifically look at how these policies were applied to Aboriginal children. The colonists saw an urgent need to focus their attention on the children of Aboriginal people, believing that removing them from their families and educating them at an early age would allow them to have a much brighter future. So, a school was established at the Native Institution. Aboriginal people were persuaded to enrol their children at the school, being told that it was in their children's best interests. Initially, enrolment was voluntary, but eventually children were coerced and even taken under duress. And once there, not permitted to leave until they reached their mid-teens. Families attempted to remove their children, but they were unable to. The colonists were convinced that they were doing the right thing, that the children would be better off. This practice of forced removal of children would continue until the 1970s and would go on to be termed as the Stolen Generations. Here is an audio clip about children being taken to these schools. It starts by trying to make the school sound like such a wonderful place to be. Here the youngsters knew happiness in the gentle, kindly care of the sisters, children of the sun and sea. Children were systematically removed without consent, and if that consent was given, it was only for education, because that was very significant in the, in the act. We'll take Jeremy because he's got to go to school. So mothers were quite happy the child was going to school, but they never sent the child back. And that was the tragedy of it all, is that it was okay to take us to school, but you had a right to bring us back. And there are people all over the Northern Territory, mothers, who still grieve, who still worry about where their kid is because they took him to school, but they never brought him back. So, what happened in these early schools? The children were taught reading, writing and arithmetic, and they also learnt Bible scriptures. The girls were taught needlework and domestic duties, while boys learned about farming and machinery. This was based on the assumption that Aboriginal people would be better suited to work for white masters or employers. The aim was to improve and civilise the students, to quote, effect the civilization of the children and to render their habits more domesticated and industrious. The native institution eventually closed and what followed after that was a period referred to as the mission period where schools were run by churches and charities. 
While continuing to teach reading, writing and arithmetic, the mission schools had a greater focus on teaching the Christian religion and their aim was to, quote, teach them Christianity and the Western way of life and to rescue them from their heathen ways. In the decades that followed, more and more public schools began operating, but under the Education Act, principals had the right to exclude Aboriginal children from their schools, and many did just that. The next significant period was called the Protection Era. In 1883, the Aboriginal Protection Board was established, and this led to the separation of Aboriginal communities onto segregated government-run stations or reserves. Aboriginal children were educated at Aboriginal-only schools on the reserves. Then in 1909, the Aboriginal Protection Act came into force, which focused on neglected Aboriginal children. The Aboriginal Protection Board was given the power to forcibly remove Aboriginal children from their families and place them into institutional care. The children were either fostered or adopted by white families or placed into orphanages or other government or church institutions. While all children were targeted, those with white heritage were particularly targeted. Children born to Aboriginal mothers and white fathers were termed as half-castes, a term today which is considered very derogatory. It was believed that these children would be more easily assimilated due to their lighter skin. It was presumed that the full-blooded Aboriginals would eventually just die out with time. The experiences of these children is nothing short of devastating. They were given new names and not allowed to speak their traditional languages. The removal of these children affected the transfer of cultural knowledge between generations. They suffered extreme physical, psychological and sexual abuse, especially those living in institutions. They were taught to be ashamed of their heritage and many were told their families had deliberately given them up or that their parents had died. Some children were not even aware of their Aboriginal heritage as it was deliberately kept from them. They were also separated from brothers and sisters and due to moving to multiple homes and families, it made it difficult for them to find their families when they grew up. The children received little education, going on to be employed on stations as farm labourers or domestic servants. Now, when I say they were forcibly removed, this is precisely what happened. Government officials would turn up and take the children from their homes. Once the Aboriginal communities realised what was happening, they would hide their children when they saw the officials coming. So just imagine, you and your children are at home, these people come and say they are taking your children and you cannot do anything about it as it's the law. And babies were even taken at birth. The babies were called blanket babies as the nurses covered them with a blanket to hide them from their mothers. This forcible removal of children came to be referred to as the Stolen Generations. We will now go on to hear about the experiences of people who were taken from their families. And rather than me telling their stories, 
you will now hear quotes and audio from a number of people about what they had gone through. Here is the first quote. Most of us girls were thinking white in the head, but were feeling black inside. We weren't black or white. We were a very lonely, lost and sad, displaced group of people. We were taught to think and act like a white person, but we didn't know how to think and act like an Aboriginal. We didn't know anything about our culture. We were completely brainwashed to think only like a white person. When they went to mix in white society, they found they were not accepted because they were Aboriginal. When they went and mixed with Aborigines, some found they couldn't identify with them either because they had too much white ways in them, so that they were neither black nor white. They were simply a lost generation of children. I know I was one of them. I can remember we used to just talk lingo. They used to tell us not to talk that language, that it's devil's language, and they'd wash our mouths with soap. We sort of had to sit down with Bible language all the time, so it sort of wiped out all of our language that we knew. I grew up sadly not knowing one Aboriginal person, and the view that was given to me was one of fear towards my people. I was told not to have anything to do with them, that they were dirty, they lived in shabby conditions, and of course, they drank to excess. Not once was I told that I was of Aboriginal descent. I was told that with my features, I was from some island and my foster family knew nothing of my family or the circumstances. And here's another quote. We were told our mother was an alcoholic and that she was a prostitute and that she didn't care about us. My foster family used to warn us that when we got older, we'd have to watch it because we'd turn into sluts and alcoholics. So we had to be very careful. If you were white, you didn't have dirtiness in you. It was in our breed to be like that. I was trying to come to grips with and believe the stories they were telling me about me being an orphan, about me having no family. In other words, telling me just to get up on your own two feet, no matter what your size, and just face this big world. And in other words, you don't belong to anybody and nobody belongs to you, so sink or swim. And they probably didn't believe that I would swim. We were told all the time, your family don't care about you anymore. They don't love you. All they are are just dirty, drunken blacks. You heard this daily. And another quote says, when I was 14 years old and going to these foster people, I remember the welfare officer sitting down and they were having a cup of tea and talking about how they were hoping our race would die out and that I was fair enough, I was a half-caste and I would automatically live with a white person and get married because the system would make sure that no one would marry an Aboriginal person anyhow and then my children would automatically be fairer, quarter-caste and then the next generation would be white and we would be bred out. I remember when she was discussing this with my foster people. Because I had no concept of what it all meant, I remember thinking, well, that's a good idea, because all the Aborigines are poor. In this next part, you will hear about the conditions in the orphanages or the church-run institutions. The government-run institutions were very poorly resourced and the children weren't adequately clothed, fed or sheltered. The children endured harsh punishments 
and were desperately unhappy, leading many to try to run away. But this was combated by having native Aboriginals trained as police trackers. They would hunt runaway children on horseback. One lady here describes what it was like living in one of these institutions. I thought I was in a nightmare. I couldn't work out what I'd done wrong to deserve this. It was like being in prison. It was very strict. You weren't allowed to do anything. It's a wonder we all survived with the food we got. I remember the beatings and the hidings they gave us. They were very cruel to us, very cruel. I've done things in that home that I don't think prisoners in a jail would do today. I remember once, I must have been eight or nine, and I was locked in the old morgue. The adults who worked there would tell us of the things that happened in there, so you can imagine what I went through. I screamed all night, but no one came to get me. I've seen girls naked, strapped to chairs and whipped. I had a problem of fainting when I was growing up, and I got belted every time I fainted, and this is belted not just on the hands or nothing. I've seen my sister dragged by the hair into those block rooms and belted because she's trying to protect me. How could this be for my own good? Please tell me. They used to lock us up in the little room like a cell and keep us on bread and water for a week if you played up too much. Stand us on cement blocks outside in the rain if you got into trouble. I'd now like for you to listen to this audio clip of an Aboriginal woman, Faye Clayton, describing her life in an institution. She uses the word Koori, which is a word for Aboriginal people. Many years ago, when I was 17 and 18, and whilst I was there, my brother found out where I was and uh, he told me where Mum was and, do you want to go and see Mum? No, I don't. Because we were told they didn't want us in the home, see? So you think, oh, God, why would you go back and see parents who didn't want you? But these are all the, the liars and, the, you know, whatever they did. The control, controlling things that they did to us in order to make us stay away from our people. <coughs> because they also told us that, you know, when you walk down the street and you see another Koori people coming up, you've got to cross the road. And we did. We crossed over, you know, and it took me a few years before I was able to mix with Koori people. And that was really sad, see? They tell us all this, but they forget to tell us that we're black. You know, we're not white. And, you know, and, and I mean, you know, we think, you know, we've been brought up this way, you know, to be good little domestic servants and you've got to do this and that. And then, but they don't tell you you're black and the whites don't want you, you know. And it, it became such a conflict, conflicting um, issue that all of us had to overcome. So a lot of the girls married non-Aboriginal non people because of that. As these children grew older, there became an overwhelming need for them to trace their roots. For many, it was a long and difficult journey to try to track down their families, only to find in many cases that their families were deceased. Many were never able to find their families. Here are some quotes of their experiences. One lady said, It was a kind of instant recognition. I looked at her. You know, it was really nice. She just kind of ran up to me and threw her arms around me 
and gave me a hug and that was really nice. And then suddenly there were all these brothers coming out of the woodwork. I didn't know I had any siblings and uncles and aunts and cousins. Suddenly everyone was coming around to meet me. Another lady said, I went to link up who found that my family had all died except one sister. I was lucky enough to spend two weeks with her before she died. She told me how my family fretted and cried when I was taken away. They also never gave up of seeing me again. Another lady said, I've received a lot of hostility from other Aboriginal people. They're my own relatives and they really hurt me because they have a go at me and say that I don't even know my own relatives and that I should, that I've got nothing in common with them. The damage is all done and I can't seem to get close to any of them. Here is what another lady said. I had no idea, like I didn't mix with Aboriginal people at all. I had, and I've admitted this in public before, that I was racist towards Indigenous people. I learnt my prejudices from newspapers, the television and from radio. And while my adoptive parents didn't go around criticising Aboriginal people in front of me, there were certainly no positive comments about Aboriginal people. I could have at least had another language and been able to communicate with these people. You know, I go there today and I have to communicate in English or use an interpreter. They're like my family. They're closer than my family that I've got and I can't even talk to them. And I really would like to be a part of that community and to work with them. But I find it very difficult. They accept me because of our blood link and things. But I am not as good an asset to them as I would have been if I had maintained all that other stuff. And here is another lady talking about when she met her siblings. I met my natural siblings at my mother's funeral. But there was too much water under the bridge. 20 years for us to have a real relationship. The biological ties were there, but that wasn't enough. We all tried to make a goal of it, but it just didn't work. I suppose Aboriginal people can get their land back, but they cannot get their family back. We are still strangers, even though we have tried to reunite. We have barriers between us created by something other than us. Being taken like we were, gave us all a sense of mistrust and insecurity. And here is another lady recalling her experience. I was in one of the cottages in a juvenile detention centre and they called me up to the head office and they said, your mother's gonna come and visit you this weekend. And I said, who? And they said, your mother. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, me mum from Greensboro, my foster mother. They said, no, no, your real mother. That just tossed me completely. I thought that she, my foster mother, was my real mother, you know, because I didn't know I was Koori then. I didn't know that I was a black fella. I just thought I was something different, you know, just dark, tanned or something. I didn't know. And the day came. She walked down. I was at school and I saw them, you know, me mum and me stepfather. I saw them walking down and I've looked over. And then they called me over, you know, and sat down and we talked. I remember I freaked out a little bit. I didn't know what to say, what to do. Here's another experience. They have these big meetings about stolen generations. We want these children back. And when you're there on their doorstep, they're saying, 
piss off because you can't prove you're black. The other rejection came, of course, from other Aboriginal people in the community. They called us whitewashed, coconuts, and things like that. Also, Johnny-come-latelys. You then had to justify your identity or try and find a place amongst all that. When people use the word coconut in front of me, I go right off the planet because there are some of us that had no choice of being one and other things too like you don't talk like a Koori, you don't dress like a Koori and they also said people aren't going to like you because you're too educated. People aren't going to like you because you're too up front. Okay, so that now brings us to the end of this first part and I will release part two in a few days so that you don't have to wait for too long. And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote from Malcolm X. Education is the passport to the future, for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.